Welcome to VR in Education. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of VR in Education. So in today's episode, we are talking with Andreas Julissen. Andreas has held many marketing lead roles in the video game industry. He's done this for over 15 years and self-proclaimed he's, his proudest moment, he says, from uh, a website I pulled was that he was undisputed tennis champion or table tennis champion, I believe, for a company, uh, Entertainment Arts. I think the company, the spinoff company was Dice. So we'll have to ask him a little bit about that. But he's here today, more importantly, to talk to us about VR puzzle games, which is a real passion of mine and trying to get those into more and more classrooms. So welcome to the show, Andreas. Thank you very much, Craig. Great to be here. Do you want do you want to uh, address your amazing table tennis skills story? <laughs> sure thing. I can do that. <clears throat> I mean, I, I used to play table tennis as a kid for seven or eight years between the age of seven and 14, I think, before you know teenage life kicked in. Uh, and then fast forwarding around 25 years or so, uh, I had a spell at the DICE, which was the developers, or are the developers of Battlefield and Star Wars Battlefront, and those kind of games. Uh, and they had a table tennis table set up in, uh, in an entertainment room in the studio that no one really played much on. And I, I spoke to some partners at the studio and say, you know, why don't we start the first official DICE table tennis tournament? Uh, and uh, long story short, we had uh, 80 or so participants from different uh, departments in the studio, development and marketing and all that. Uh, and I ended up uh, winning the singles and the doubles uh, tournament, uh, getting some really nice prizes and, of course, a title undisputed table tennis champion for the company. Uh, so that's how it started. What was your go-to move? Was it a killer backhand? Was it your incredible serve? The smash? Tell me what 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 made you so lethal? Um, I mean, it's it's by far my forehand loop. Mm. I think it's uh, I think I scared a lot of uh, com you know uh, players uh, <laughs> when performing that sort of spin on my forehand. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah, that was cool. <clears throat> that was cool. <clears throat> So let, let's shift gears and talk a bit about uh, the theme to the show, which is virtual reality. And I always start out with this question with all my guests, and that's what got you interested in VR, virtual reality in the first place? Yeah, and I, I think I'm, I'm one of many who had this uh, sort of entry into VR, both into the industry, but also maybe from a gamer's perspective. You know, it all came down to me trying it out. For the first time, which of course is a challenge today. We need more people to actually try out VR to understand just how amazing it is. So when I was at Dice, actually, uh, we got to try out the the early development kit for Oculus Rift before it hit the market. So I think this was maybe in 2014 or 2015. Um, we played. I, I got to play a mech game and fly over a city in a, in a huge robot suit. Uh, which just felt amazing. <clears throat> and at that point, I didn't really 
decide to move into VR gaming as uh, you know as a professional. Uh, but a year or two years after that, I was at Comic Con, uh, and I got to try an early version of uh, Ocean Descent on PlayStation VR, where you sit in a shark cage and the shark comes and and basically eats the cage open and tries to get at you uh, while you're in the ocean. And I, I couldn't take that experience. It was too intense and too immersive for me. And at that point, I felt like, okay, this is something I really want to do as a professional. I want to work with VR games marketing in this case. And two years after that, I think I joined the industry. So that's mm-hmm. how it started for me. And, and you know, I've been playing VR since then as well, of course. I, I want to reiterate one thing you said earlier, and that is that you know the magic of VR can only be told by getting headsets on people. Because yeah. in, in in my field in education, that's the same thing. When I talk to teachers, they're they're not convinced until finally they actually put a headset on, and they're they're just wowed. So let's talk about uh, one of my favorite games that you guys have in your repertoire, and that is the Curious Tale of the Stolen Pets. Can you give listeners just sort of a quick kind of Cole's notes or background on what the game's about? Sure. So our studio is called Fast Travel Games, <coughs> and uh, we're based in Stockholm, Sweden, and it was founded in 2016, so in the early days of home VR gaming, really. Um, our first game uh, was not this. It was more of an action-adventure, but as a second game, we felt that we wanted to explore um, puzzling in VR. And we decided to create a game that became uh, known as The Curious Tale of the Stolen Pets. And in this game, uh, you're basically taken back to your childhood imaginary worlds together with your grandfather to find the animals that's gone missing. So it's a little bit of a nostalgia trip to the memories you have with your grandfather as a child and you used to play a lot with him. You get to revisit your old childhood bedroom and in this bedroom you have different paintings on your walls and when you touch those paintings you basically travel to that specific world. So you can travel to your summer cottage or to your winter vacation or to the prehistoric world that you used to play around uh, in with your grandfather. And when you travel to these worlds uh, what happens is that you get sort of a small miniature uh, world, world in front of you where you can interact with all the elements. You can spin the world, you can touch things, you can lift things and you know try things out and interact with everything that's happening. There's a lot of color and uh, life in these worlds as well. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the core element of it is uh, puzzles. So by interacting with all the elements you will eventually solve puzzles. Some are chained, some are you know, singular puzzles, uh, and reveal uh, a few of the hidden animals in each of the worlds. And if you find all the animals, you basically get the conclusion as to your, your main memory with your grandpa and why your childhood was so important to both him and to you. I love the game mechanics. So for the audience out there that have not played this game, you, you need to try it just because um, Andreas alluded to the game mechanics where, you know, some puzzle games and, and VR games in general, often you're the first person. So you can see your hands and you're in the game. But for the most part, for this game, you're not kind of looking at it from 
first person point of view or perspective, which I think is really cool and unique. Like you said, you can spin sort of the scenes and what's going on around you. And that's a really sort of unique thing that I enjoy most about the game. Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing if you play, especially if you play on a wireless headset, like, for example, the Oculus Quest or the Oculus Quest 2, you can walk around the world as well in your living room or kitchen or wherever you're playing and, and basically have the world in the center of the room and walk around it and look underneath it and look above it and lean in and look, you know, can I find a hidden coin behind the cottage or is there an animal inside the cave if I look deep enough into the cave and all that? So it's very... It's very intuitive, and it, it really incentivizes you to use uh, the whole spectra of VR to to solve the, the puzzles. So, besides cool game mechanics, having just the right storyline or narrative for a puzzle game is key. And and I believe again, you guys sort of hit a home run here. How did you? How did the developers or fast travel games come up with this cute narrative? Yeah, it's a. I mean, we have a uh, culture at the studio where we really encourage our developers to pitch game ideas to us and and see if you know we can make something great out of it. It might be a concept for a section of a game, or it might be a full game. And in this case, <clears throat> we had a uh, guy called James Hunt who pitched the idea of having a miniature world. The sense of scale, I think, is unprecedented in, in VR. The fact that you are bigger than objects in the game or that you find, you know you might be smaller than, than that, then that's, that scale is something that's, that VR can deliver that, that traditional flat-screen game cannot, really. So it all started... It, the game was actually called Diorama to begin with. Um, and that was the core idea, to have miniature items or worlds in front of you as the VR player. And from that idea, which we found really interesting to experiment with, um, we also decided that we might need a more emotional storyline or at least a story to tell to make the whole experience relevant because it's a very hard sell, I would say, with puzzle games uh, in VR because... A lot of the VR wins are about selling a fantasy, you know, being on the moon or surviving this zombie apocalypse. There's very few people who dream about solving puzzles. Um, and even fewer that actually does it in real life, maybe apart from escape rooms. So we had to have an element of emotional attachment to the product and a story that people would be interested in. Um, and so we decided upon this uh, nostalgia memory filled experience to really strike a core with maybe also the more grown up audience because the game it looks kind of cartoonish and maybe even you know maybe even childish uh, in some areas but the, the story and the emotional uh, elements in the game are very grown up there's a, there are topics in the game that are uh, especially you know uh, interesting for a grown-up who's playing, and we had to have that implemented as well to make to increase the relevance of the product for for grown-ups. I think so that's you know, how it's a, yeah. There's this fine balance that puzzle games need to pull off, you know, and and same with problem solving in schools and in education, and that is you don't want the the puzzle to be too easy. 
because then people a they'll they'll whip through the experience and don't feel like they got value for their money. But you don't you don't want to make it too hard either because then people obviously put the headset down because they're incredibly frustrated and and don't know what to do next. Yeah. How do you, how do you find the right balance there? That's a really good question. I think <clears throat> we know for a fact that VR is uh, enjoyed in shorter spells than you know traditional flat screen gaming, where where people can spend hours or sometimes even days playing in in one whole session. Uh, VR is much more played in you know twenty, thirty, forty minute spells. Um, so you can't really ask for too much patience <laughs> from the players. Uh, and this game, The Curious Tale, is very much uh, a meditative experience. If you if you look at the uh, just how everything moves around in the game, there's a sense of serenity and calm to the whole experience. The music is also uh, non-stressful. It's very meditative. There is no time limit. There is no hardcore fail states, and you can't die. You can't fail really. So by implementing all this, we really tried to encourage players to take their time, look at all the the little hints, because there are a lot of hints in the world. There are signs you can find if you look for them. There are sound clues that might pinpoint you in the right direction. Um, So I think the main key is to set uh, expectations right from the very start. And if we can have the player enter the game with an understanding that this is not the game you should rush through. This is a game where you should take your time, you know, breathe calmly, experiment you know, with your imagination and your creativity, try things out, and eventually you will progress. So it is, it's definitely a challenge. And I think the first level in the game is relatively easy, uh, which... Again, you have to cater for that kind of experience because if the first level is too hard, it will just have people getting frustrated and drop out. So the first level was key for us. The summer cottage level was really key to introduce um, to the player how the game is meant to be played, what kind of mindset you should have when playing. And then as you enter the second level, Difficulty raises a bit, and it becomes a little bit more tricky to solve the puzzles. And by the fourth level, you have some puzzles that are really tricky, but by hopefully doing our job as a developer, hand-holding the player through the first few levels, we have this sort of natural increase in difficulty, which means that players can actually appreciate it when they experience it in the fourth level, except from, you know, throwing lots of challenges at them from the very start. How long would a an average time be to finish all the levels and get to the end? We have, it's not a super long game. That was never our intention. So I think <clears throat> just finding all the animals will probably take you around one and a half to two hours. Mm. Uh, you can finish the game without finding all the animals. But if you do find every animal, you will get sort of the true ending and, and a, sort of a revelation at the end. So that's really something we encourage players to do. And then we also implemented sort of a, a collectible for those uh, completionists out there. So in each level, you have allowance money hidden that you can find. Uh, and by finding all the allowance money, you also get a specific kind of 
reward in the game. So there are there, there's maybe you know one additional hour of gameplay for those players who wants to find everything. Okay, I did not know that. Um, more and more people are starting to buy headsets, and you know, good or bad, uh, as you alluded to, Oculus within the last month or so with the new Quest Two has helped push that even faster. Has there ever been talk of this being multiplayer where more than one person could work together at the puzzle game? Yeah, definitely. Um, we had, uh, no, I, I won't say we were making a decision or on implementing multiplayer or not, but we really, really explored the idea of adding multiplayer into the game. And that was probably our our primary request from the community of the launch as well that people wanted to experience this with a friend so it's it's uh, it's not something we are adding it's it's not something we have resources to implement for this game um, but i think going forward especially now since we have seen i actually i actually made a uh, an analysis a couple of weeks back when i had a guest lecture for a, few, a couple of students um, it looks like we are at around 12 million six degrees of freedom headsets on the market right now, which means that there is finally, I would say, um, a big enough audience uh, of VR headset owners so you can actually focus on multiplayer because that was not really the case in the beginning. There were just weren't enough players to to warrant, you know, putting resources and adding multiplayer features. But now we're seeing multiplayer becoming more and more popular. And, uh, yeah, people have friends to play with now. It is a bit of a gamble, though. I know uh, I had interviewed uh, the makers of Space Team VR, and one of the things that, you know, if you look on the Oculus Quest store that, you know, if they give a low-star rating, Mm -hmm. often it it has to do with just that, where someone wants is excited to put on headset and they want to play something that is massively multiplayer like space team VR. And there's no one out there, you know, in the the metaverse that is around to play with them. And then they're disappointed. Right. Exactly. I mean, and that's, you know, and usually most, most VR gaming studios today are relatively small sized, uh, especially compared to flat screen gaming. We are 24 people. And uh, there are a lot of studios who are between five and ten, or even fewer as well. Some are bigger, but we have to really decide where to put our eggs in what basket, really. And multiplayer just hasn't—it's—it's uh, it's been too much of a gamble in the past. I do think that we're 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 finally seeing more and more multiplayer titles coming to market. Some of them are focusing on one versus one, or you know, two versus two, or maybe four versus four. Uh, but there's also the first kind of big battle royale game coming out, Population One, which is for, mm-hmm. for a lot more players, of course. So I think that over the next few years, multiplayer will will blow up and, and really become a big thing in VR. Maybe also for puzzle games, because solving puzzles with a friend, I've, I've done that in flat screen gaming a lot, and it's really, really awesome. Yeah, and escape rooms, you know, they're exactly. obviously not during COVID-19, but... Prior to COVID nineteen, they're incredibly popular. So I can see the efficacy of something like that. Yeah. As a teacher, and more importantly, as a design teacher, we you know we often encourage kids to 
iterate. So iterate means, you know, version one won't be as good as version two. You need to get feedback, you know, whether that's an essay or some product that you're trying to make on a 3D printer. So in the gaming industry, how do you guys, you know, use play testing to iterate a game before you think it's ready to be launched to for commercial sale? Yeah, <clears throat> it's it's not that much different, I would say, compared to traditional flat screen gaming. But uh, maybe there are three areas, I think, where we put our focus uh, in order to shape the product for, for launch. So first, we have our own quality assurance team inside the studio. Uh, it's a one-guy team, though, but he's, he's sort of responsible for the quality assurance of the product. Uh, so he, he plays our games all the time uh, and really try to find all the bugs that we need to fix, uh, what kind of polish we need to add. Also listening into the communities and seeing what's being requested now from the players out there uh, entering 2021, what will be the main requests from VR gamers, etc. Um, then, of course, we, we let our families and friends play a lot and gather their insights. We also have our own you know, uh, play, play tests on Friday. So every Friday at two o'clock, all of our devs and ourselves at the studio, we, we play the latest build of our games and feedback on our experience. Um, but I say the most important thing is uh, of course, uh, the publishing process with the first party, the platform owners. So, when you release a game on Oculus, for example, or PlayStation, there are quite long and deep uh, certification processes where QA, quality assurance, is a, is a major thing. So uh, before they, they sign off on your product, you're really not allowed to release it. So you have to pass through a quite substantial quality assurance. And, and PlayStation even has a VR-specific certification process in addition to the traditional uh, game release process. So, you know, your own testing along with platform testing, I think, should at least make most VR games today entering the market uh, to be in a, in a really good shape from the start. What, what percentage of games in their early stages or infancy end up just shelved zero you mean end up not being released or yeah not not making it to the commercial market because either from feedback you know maybe you know you thought you had a really good narrative or storyline but at the end of the day after getting you know several layers of feedback you you know you might say to yourself and, and you hear this about movies like you hear about scripts and movies that never end end up on the big screen you know, yeah. does that rare does that rarely happen in the gaming industry? I think it's quite a rare occasion, to be honest, because usually <clears throat> when you find one or more platform partners where you are going to release your game eventually, um, the first sort of sign off process uh, is very much on a uh, if you have a concept for a game and you get that signed off, it's basically a green light to go ahead and publish the game eventually as long as you can pass the quality assurance and the certification. And that you usually do that. You usually pass. It might take you know a few more weeks or a few more months because you have 
they found a lot more bugs than you had done yourself. But it, it's it's a very it's very rare that something gets killed uh, at that stage. If if so, it gets killed or, or sort of cancelled way earlier than that. I would say. So do, I'm also curious about deciding on a genre for a VR game, as I already alluded to, and I, I mentioned this several times on previous shows and episodes, you know, puzzle games are, I'm a huge fan of them because I see the educational merit. They teach systems thinking, they te- teach problem solving. However, if I'm in the entertainment industry and not in the education industry, you know, that may be a bit harder a sell as you alluded to. How do they stack up? Like how do you know, the sales and the numbers for a puzzle game compared to maybe some other genre of game, you know, like a first person shooter game. Yeah. I mean, that's it to be very transparent. There's looking at the top sellers from 2016 and up till today, it's being, it's, it's dominant dominated by, uh, shooter-related titles or action-related titles, uh, along maybe with the more um, music-themed titles like Beat Saber. Mm. Uh, there is very few puzzle games that are you know considered top sellers in VR today. But also, I think it's because there aren't there haven't there haven't been enough of them. To be honest, uh, it's a, it has been a little bit of a gamble. You know, the the first thing you want to do as a developer is to find that sort of fantasy that where you can sell to players. Like, okay, you might not be able to travel to the moon in real life, but we can actually put you on the moon in this game, and you also get to shoot aliens, which is really cool. That's not something you would do in real life at all. And having that fantasy <clears throat> uh, in a trailer or you know just in, as a key art for a game, for example, that goes a long way. For a title, and that's I think why why we saw so many action related titles in the beginning because the, the fantasy, the power fantasy of being a superhero or an action hero, is very strong, and it's it's uh, you know it's thrilling to think that I can become Iron Man, for example, mm. in my own living room. There is no fantasy in in puzzles per se, and that's probably why we haven't seen at least for the first few years, where we didn't see many puzzle titles. Um, then I guess it, it's also pending platform because the Curious Tale of the Stolen Pets is performing really well on Oculus Quest. And it's not performing as well on Steam, for example, where you have a much more core-centered, hardcore PC uh, VR audience who are used to you know the latest graphical fidelity and, and you know just these power horses of uh, Half-Life Alex, for example, mm-hmm. is a much tougher sell to sell a nice-looking, cute puzzle game to that audience if compared to the more, more mainstream casual VR gamer that owns an Oculus Quest. So there's a, there's a huge difference in how the game is performing across the platforms. I would argue also, you know, when I look at the top selling VR puzzle games, you know, I would put yours obviously up there and then uh, A Fisherman's Tale would also be highly ranked as a a good selling VR puzzle game. And both those two, yours and then A Fisherman's Tale have, which we talked about earlier, and that is a unique 
kind of innovative, interesting, never thought of before game mechanic behind it, right? The scale in A Fisherman's Tale where you're going from big to small. And then we already talked about the, uh, the neat mechanics that you guys have provided. So, I mean, that must be hard for a, a studio to do. You know, if you're going to launch, as you said, a VR puzzle game, it better A, have a great narrative or story that someone wants to fantasize about. And then B, how do you think up something that no one's ever done before for game mechanics? Super hard to do, right? It is. I mean, that's also why The Curious Tale was more of an experiment for us than anything else. The team <clears throat> grew from two to six people, maybe eight in the end, but it was still just a small portion of the studio who worked on this game. Um, so, you know, we, we wouldn't put our whole studio behind a game like that today. Um, we might do in the future, of course. I think if you work with a well-known pop culture brand, for example, that might be a whole different thing. Um, but yeah, that it, it's true. And then there are, of course, there are also titles that are kind of puzzle games, <clears throat> but maybe not considered just puzzle games. You know, Job Simulator, for example, is more of a, it's a very hard genre to nail down. It, that's a massive, massive top seller in VR. One of the mm-hmm. early games that you can actually play around uh, in. And, and it had a great accessibility and sort of ease of use. Uh, and also kind of a fantasy of you know working at, the, at an office and doing crazy things. Um, do you ever think, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Um, do you ever think, so I, I read, I can't remember whose book it was, but someone talked about how, you know, casual games became a stress relief for many people because they could, you know, quickly pick up their phone, which was ubiquitous to them and play something like Candy Crush for 15, 20 minutes at the office you know, de-stress a little bit and then hopefully put their phone away when it was time to get back to work. Do you ever see VR playing that kind of role in the future? I I actually think so. And I, I think the reason we haven't seen it yet is that, you know, up until May last year, um, you needed to connect your headset with a lot of cables. You needed to set up external cameras to track your headset, and you needed a power unit like a computer or a PlayStation 4, for example, in order to power it up and have it run. So that was way too complicated and cumbersome for that kind of experience where you would just put it on and play for 15 minutes. The, the, the very accessible plug-and-play nature of an iPhone or even a Nintendo Switch, <clears throat> I, I think, is something we're starting to see now in VR. So if you've tried the Oculus Quest, you know that you can put it on your head wherever you are and press the button, really, and then be inside your game in maybe 10, 15 seconds. There's nothing needed. You can do it wherever and, and really whenever. So the ease of use and the accessibility that that's provided, um, I think is, is sort of paving the way for VR to be become a little bit like uh, Candy Crush, uh, mm-hmm. for better or worse. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's all down to that. And then, you know, affordability is another thing because this is another tech item you need to acquire in addition to your smartphone and maybe your PC or gaming console if you want to. Uh, price used to be a big issue in VR, um, and I'm not saying three hundred dollars 
is not a lot of money. It's a lot of money for a lot of people, but it's still at that point where we now start to see, I think at least the first signs of mass adoption in VR. Yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember uh, when my son and daughter who are now in university were in high school, they required uh, a Texas instrument, whatever 85 or a TI 83 calculator. And at that time, they were over $200. And as a parent, it was needed for their math class. And so, you know, I can't help but think, you know, a few more, or maybe even a year down the road where a good six degree of freedom headset could be close to $200 by then. So, yeah, I think so. I mean, first science now of the Oculus Quest 2, we're just a week after release, but uh, you see developers all over the place just shouting out how big of an impact the the new headset has had on their game sales mm. so i think yep. that's something and, and i i see a lot of my friends and my you know my contact network around places like linkedin who's never experienced vr before all of a sudden they have ordered a quest 2 headset and they're asking you know what's what's the best way to get started what games should i play what experiences are cool so yeah, exciting, exciting times, hey. Definitely. What is yeah? What does the future hold for fast travel games? I know you can't probably share too many uh, things that are in the pipeline, but uh, you know, wh- where are you headed next? So we we're working hard to create our own roadmap of games. The focus is still going to be on home VR gaming. So I know a lot of studios are exploring. AR, like augmented reality or mm-hmm. location-based VR, which, you know, of course, sadly is suffering a lot now uh, during COVID. And location-based, I mean, like the arcade centers and the experiences you have uh, from different companies who who have these big, like, um, suits and helmets and stuff where you, where you do the real thing and walk around in a massive building but our focus is very much to create games for home vr gaming and if our last game was a cute puzzle game (laughs) our next game is basically flipping the coin completely Mm. so we have we have a new title that's been announced and that we are releasing early next year so in just a few months uh, which is called wraith the oblivion afterlife and it's the first ever VR game set in the world of darkness, which is basically a pop cultural fantastic universe uh, where you have vampires and werewolves and stuff like that. Um, so we will let players become a ghost, really, a spirit of the dead, and explore a massive mansion as a ghost with specific powers like let them you know, walk through walls or manipulate items in the distance and stuff like that. So it's a it's a horror game so there might be some light puzzling in the game there's a lot of exploration but we're working heavily on the horror aspect and really make the player feel at unease all the time <laughs> so it's completely different from it's uh, nighttime here it's nighttime here for me in singapore so you're already wrecking my uh, my <laughs> worry about sleep so <laughs> yeah it's going to be it's probably going to be one of the scariest experiences that you've ever had in your life, I think wow. that's, that's our goal, at least. So that's the whole studio is behind that. But at the same time, we're also exploring with other titles um, to uh, to release going forward. So 
but that's that's to be shared later on. So next up is is this horror game. Excellent. Anything else that hasn't been said that you maybe were hoping to talk about or bring up or make or allow listeners to hear about as it pertains to VR? Um, maybe just the fact that I think that VR can play an even more important role now, you know, given the, the virus situation in the world and, and the uncertainty of, you know, meeting in real life. Uh, I see a lot of friends now who are very happy that they can connect with friends mm-hmm. in virtual reality. So <clears throat> and we see that from our, you know, just looking at a, a simple thing like the unit sales of our games, it's, it's increased a lot since COVID hit, um, which is, of course, good for us. But it also says something about the fact that people see VR as a very nice way of, you know, having fun while being stuck at their homes and, and maybe even also stay in contact with their friends. There is a lot of social apps out there where you can explore the world together and stuff like that so if you haven't tried vr yet try to visit a friend if you can and and experience vr for the first time because i think that given covid vr will be of, of an even bigger importance over the next few years from a lot of different reasons well said i hope uh, i hope so too so amen to that if people wanted to get a hold of you to learn more about maybe the company or, I don't know, ask you uh, questions, I'm not sure what you're comfortable with, how how could they get a hold of you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm happy for people to reach out anytime. So myself, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my, <clears throat> my nick there is uh, Balsar Juliusson, but you can also look me up at Andreas Juliusson. So Twitter or uh, in LinkedIn, I would say, are, is the best ways to, to reach out to me. And then Fast Travel Games, we are basically everywhere. So Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, you have at Fast Travel Games. Or you can just go to uh, fasttravelgames.com and uh, find the contact information there as well. Fantastic. Andreas, thanks so much for uh, being on the show. I know... Um, you know, it's an educational show, but I have to admit, uh, I, as is the case for probably many other listeners, learned a lot about a side of VR that maybe this podcast hasn't addressed. And that is just, you know, looking at the different genres and marketing of VR. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great.